The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Now, 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 it's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today on the program, I'll speak with new sponsor, Brad Thompson, CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the NASDAQ and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics has developed a reovirus called Reolysin that attacks cancer tumors while leaving healthy cells alone. I'll chat with Harry Fleming, the president of Texas-based Noblis Health, trading on the TSX as NHC. Noblis has successfully developed a cadre of boutique surgical centers in Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix. We've seen their share price nearly triple since they began as a sponsor with us in January. David Morgan of The Morgan Report joins me for a conversation about commodities, and he has a startling prediction for the energy sector and oil derivatives and the coming effect on the economy. We'll finish the show with Dudley Baker of CommonStockWarrants.com. And now the marijuana speculator for a first look at that controversial space on this program. Let's begin the Ellis Martin Report. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, President and CEO of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolysin, its proprietary formulation of the human reovirus, and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Now, if you wouldn't mind, give us a summary on Oncolytics Biotech. Well, we're a cancer care company. We have a product under development that is looking at a number of different cancers at the same time. It's actually using a live agent, in this case, a virus, to treat cancer. From that perspective, it's, it's quite exciting, actually, to take something this novel and to actually get it into people to try to treat their cancers. It's been quite exciting for us. Now, Reolysin is a reovirus which is specifically designed to attack cancerous tumors. Is that correct? Well, this is one of a small group of these viruses, and there are a number of them under development in a number of different companies that actually is naturally what we call oncolytic. So that naturally infects and kills cancer cells without being genetically modified. There are three or four viruses out there that are genetically modified so that they do that. And there's a couple, including real virus, that do it just by all by themselves. And the basis for that is a genetic pattern that is found uh, only in cancer cells. And so this virus will infect a cancer cell and well, normal cells too. And if it actually finds that genetic kind of profile that defines why cancer cells become cancerous, then it can replicate and grow and it'll kill the cell in two or three days. That's just the first part of how it works though. 
There's a secondary part where the act of actually killing the tumor, I mean, just like a normal viral infection at that point, actually causes the immune system to wake up and actually recognize what the virus is killing, which in this case is tumor, and you get a secondary immune response that actually is probably responsible for most of the long-term survivors that we're seeing on clinical studies. How is this related to chemotherapy? Is it something you do in conjunction with chemotherapy? Is it a separate issue? What are the various methods of treatment? In clinical studies, we've used Reovirus, and our branded name is Reolysin for that, in combination with most of the available chemotherapies and radiation as well, and now starting to do studies with some of the newer age biologics, things like Avast. And a hallmark of the, the reason why we do that is twofold. The first is that those are generally the standards of care to get access to patients in first or second line. So the first time they're treated or the second time they're treated, have to actually incorporate your therapy with what they're already getting treated with, in which cases, chemo, radiation, and new age biologic. The more important scientific reason is is that Briolysin actually works a lot better in a tumor that's stressed a little bit. And I can't be too much more defined than that because it's a little undefined still from a scientific perspective. But if you stress a tumor, the virus actually replicates a lot better. And some tumors are naturally stressed, like the inside of big tumors where there's not much oxygen or nutrient supply. But some tumors aren't naturally stressed. And so a little tiny bit of chemotherapy or a little tiny bit of radiation causes that nice stressing event. And the virus actually works a lot better then. What is the game plan for the company in general? Are you going to be licensing your technology to Big Pharma? Yeah, when we started up Oncolytics, one of the very first things that we did was to say, we're not going to become a fully integrated pharmaceutical company, the old FIPCO of many many years ago. And the reason for that is knowing what you do better or knowing what you do best. You know, we're not marketing types. And so our assumption was that we would take the product fairly late into development and then either the company would get bought or it would associate itself with a larger entity that had uh, marketing and sales expertise and if necessary expertise in finishing off the product development in the very late stage. That is still our plan and I would still expect that to be the outcome. How has cancer research in your opinion changed in the last 10 years significantly? There's two absolutely revolutionary events that have happened in cancer therapy in the last 10 years. The first is actually not in the therapeutic component, but in the diagnostic predictive component. People call this personalized medicine. Women, for example, are getting prophylactic breast removal in case they have the wrong genetic profile to prevent themselves from having cancer and those sorts of things. And what that's based on is that this whole genetic testing revolution that's happened. There's certain genetic markers associated with certain diseases, not just cancer. But in the cancer area, now we can take a very tiny piece of tissue, like 5, 10 nanograms, which you can't even see. It's like a fine needle biopsy. And in a day or two, test that tissue and actually determine if you have a certain genetic marker. And then you can match that marker up against different drugs that you know will either work with that marker or don't work with that marker and allow a patient to get treated with a drug that actually will work with higher probability. And that's critical. The best chance a patient has at an effective therapeutic outcome is the first time they're treated. The second big development has been the harnessing of the immune system. Words that people may have heard are things like checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, PD-L1, immune therapies. That whole area is in essence starting to harness the immune system to actually attack and kill tumors just like it would a parasite or an infection or if you get a kidney transplant and you don't have the right match, your immune system will reject the kidney. That's all the same type of process where we're now harnessing the immune system to kill tumors directly. And those two things have just changed the entire cancer therapy environment. Your late stage phase three trials with regard to head and neck cancers. What does that mean for patients afflicted with these cancers? 
Well, head and neck cancer is one of the most difficult cancers to address. It's a region, it's a location on your body rather than a specific cancer. It's really 10 or 12 different cancers all rolled into each other that occur between your lower jaw and your collarbone. That's really the region that's called head and neck cancer. And partly because of that, and partly because it's in many ways an environmentally induced cancer, most of them are caused by smoking or now human papillomavirus infections. Those two things together cause most head and neck cancers. That combination has made it a very difficult area to treat. And what we did was ran the first part of a phase three study, mostly to figure out which patient populations would succeed and which wouldn't succeed, and then to retool, adapt basically, and to do a a second stage in that study. And we are now preparing to do that. The location for that study is likely to be in Europe. And it is, again, quite exciting for us to actually being able to, to be thinking about addressing this very, very difficult to treat cancer. Now, there's going to be individuals that are listening to this program that either have some form of cancer or know someone that have some form of cancer that may be very excited about what they're hearing. And I'm sure you get calls on a regular basis. What do you have to say to members of our audience that are interested in potentially getting therapy for themselves or for their family and or friends? We're contacted between five and 10 times a day by patients or relatives of patients or friends of patients seeking access to real license for therapy. Normally in the United States, the sequence that we direct people to is if there's already an existing clinical trial, and we have a number of clinical studies going on at any time in the United States, if their cancer matches that clinical trial, they should seek to get onto that clinical study. And those clinical studies are usually up on clinicaltrials.gov. So clinicaltrials.gov is the website that gives them all the contact details and the people who are involved. Now, if they're unfortunate that they don't have a clinical study uh, that we're running in, there is the avenue in some of the cases to get what we call a compassionate release. That's a much more complicated process and, and honestly doesn't happen very often with respect to our product. Our first line is to try to see if we can get people on an existing clinical study. We don't really do that many of them in the United States, uh, but that is an option. And so if people can't get onto a clinical study and they want to discuss getting onto the product outside of that, that's the route that we would suggest they take. What types of cancers do you believe you'll be able to combat? Realizing has a unique ability based on the genetics of, of cancers to treat up to about two-thirds of any specific solid tumor cancer type. So if you were to randomly pick somebody with uh, prostate cancer, what we know about the genetics, one could expect about a two-thirds probability of seeing some kind of tumor response in that patient. With respect to solid tumors, the expectation is that real ISM could treat virtually any solid tumor population, but about two-thirds of it. When you get to the non-solid tumors, so things like leukemias and hematological malignancies, the percentage varies more within each cancer. It can go as low as 20% in some cases, as high as 80% in other cases. So it's far less consistent. But there is the probability, literally with respect to virtually any cancer, that real ISIN will have some benefit for a proportion of the population. Tell us about your management team and the people that make Oncolytics happen. Well, we have six members of our core management team, senior management, three of which are resident in the United States and three of which are resident in Canada. And they have actually the kind of backgrounds you would expect to see in a biotech company. Our chief safety officer and our chief medical officer are both medical doctors. My chief safety officer is actually a pediatric oncologist, and my chief medical officer was a neurologist by training. And they direct our medical affairs, the two of them, both from the United States. Our senior vice president of intellectual property is also a U.S. resident, and she comes from a very, very deep background in intellectual property, having worked in biotech and then becoming a lawyer and working in one of the largest firms on the planet before she came and worked with us. So we have very specific relevant skills to our business. On the Canadian side, our chief 
operating officer and myself both are microbiologists by training. Matt's a virologist, and I am a, a broader-based infectious disease background. And so from the scientific side, based on that, and our, our chief financial officer is a very well-experienced person with having a company running on both the NASDAQ and both on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And so you have a, a kind of a broad-based skilled set from different types of sources required to run and operate a biotech company. A very, very deep experience based, though, from a public company perspective. You have people who have been officers of public companies for an up or two, in my case, over 20 years now. It's, I think, a relevant team and certainly certainly gets the work done that needs to be done in a very high quality. Of course, you are a publicly traded company and you have a fiduciary duty in attracting a new shareholder interest. Let's talk about that briefly. You mentioned you trade in the United States and in Canada. Why do you think there's a great deal of interest in health or health-related concerns right now with regard to the stock market? Have you thought about it much? I'm sure you have. Well, biotech over the last 18 months has had a, a very good run, if you want to call it that, in the stock market as an industry. Part of that's because we're actually starting to deliver sort of breakthrough drugs in a number of indications. And it's one of those very few areas where when a person is an investor in a company, they also have interest or a feel-good factor with what they're investing in. I mean, I started out working in the oil industry and you're digging up fossil carbon out of the ground so it can get burnt. And while it's highly profitable in normal circumstances, it doesn't have that personal connection and the feel-good factor. Many of our investors, specifically in oncolytics, for example, have a personal connection with cancer themselves. And they also feel by investing in our company that they're actually helping move along the work in trying to find a new therapy for treating cancer. Biotech in general has that very I think special connection with this investor base linked with, if you're successful, very, very high probabilities of very high returns. If it works out, it's all things wrapped up in one package. Specifically with regard to Oncolytics, let's break down the share structure. What does that look like for a potential investor? Well, our share structure is pretty volatile from where the investors are, what proportion are institutional, what proportion are retail. We have fairly significant shareholdings in the United States, Canada, Europe, and Southeast Asia right now. So it's fairly broadly distributed. At times in the past, at one point we were almost half held in Europe. At one point we were you know, 75 or 80% held in Canada. I mean, it, it does fluctuate. And our institutional shareholder base goes from single digit, so under 10% all the way up to 50 or 60%, depending on the time of the year and what year it is. So it's a very dynamic shareholder base. I personally like the kind of worldwide distribution element of our shareholder base. It's, it's very gratifying, actually, to have that kind of attention from everywhere. Potentially, there's a great deal of upside, isn't there? Any biotech company, in particular in our case, uh, you know, with our current valuation, I mean, you can go from being where you are to transitioning to having you know, late-stage clinical data and product approval that leads to very, very significant changes in valuation almost overnight. And this has been repeated hundreds of times in our industry. And it's a, a very much an industry where you expect volatility in valuations, but the end is always that prize. If you get that late stage data and then subsequent product approval, you are going to have high degree of certainty, a very, very high rate of return. And of course, you have some of that late stage data with regard to head and neck cancer. I think in the near to midterm, the most important milestones that people should be looking for with oncolytics is with respect to phase two data. We have five randomized phase two studies that are either completed enrollment or about to complete enrollment that we'll be reporting on in the next year. And we have a number of what we call single arms 
studies where you, you only have all the patients are getting your product that will also be reporting on lifespan data in the coming year. And the combination of that kind of very large amount of clinical data from a variety of different clinical studies are, are generally considered to be fairly significant with respect to a potential inflection or change in valuation. Brad, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to speaking with you again about Oncolytics during the coming weeks. Thank you very much, Ellis. I do as well. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, the CEO and president of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading on the NASDAQ exchange as ONCY and on the TSX as ONC. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire program on iTunes. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Today I'm speaking with Harry Fleming, the president of Nobilis Health Corporation, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.to. Nobilis Health strategically partners with physicians in the development and management of ambulatory surgical centers, or ASCs, providing superior medical care, increased patient satisfaction, and lower costs for healthcare delivery. Nobilis recently acquired Athos Health for $34 million. Athos, based in Dallas, focused on the marketing and delivery of specialized healthcare services in seven states. Harry, welcome to the program. Would you discuss the recent acquisition of Athis and the value that this brings to Nobilis as a healthcare marketing firm? Nobilis is a little different than other healthcare companies in that we're selective in the procedures that we do at our centers. We're not like the big hospitals where you take all the emergencies and every type of case. As a business, we're able to select the type of procedures that give good reimbursements and also the type of procedures that we think are easy to market to the consumer. We drive our revenues through marketing efforts, whether online or through television ads. We built up a very large in-house advertising team. We were well aware of one of our main competitors, which is Athos Health. These guys are based out of Dallas. They specialize in spine cases through a laser procedure. We knew the team from years gone by. We engaged in discussions with them. They had a very, very advanced marketing team, so they were ahead of us by a couple years. Very good conversion process. At our end, we have a call center, which is substantial. They'll take the message and they forward it to try and set up the patient visit with the doctor. Over at Athis, they have patient coordinators, which are very much like sales and educators. They'll educate the callers. They'll have 15 to 20 different conversations with them along the health healthcare continuum. They're very good at what they do. We wanted to apply that type of model to our bariatric program, our spine program, and our podiatry program, as well as overlay it onto new programs that we intend to offer at our facilities in both Texas and Arizona. With regard to Athis, you came across very stiff competition in your area, and the logical move for the previous entity, North Star, was to acquire the competition, becoming Nobilis. This was an odd acquisition in that I've been doing acquisitions for 30 years, and this is the first time I've come across a deal like this where there's great synergies, and you, you often see that in acquisitions. There's a, a great pickup in management, and again, you often see that. Where we really deviated from the typical acquisition is that the Athis model is that they go and spend marketing dollars to acquire patients and they send those patients to facilities and basically they split the facility fee with that facility as a marketing charge. That other half of the equation is where Northstar plays, although we also market we have the facility side of the revenue equation. So Athos was unable to acquire those revenues. Northstar in acquiring the Athos company is not only getting the Athos revenues but the other facility fee revenues that uh, otherwise would not go to Athos. Kind of a double pickup in revenues. Break that down just a bit. So Athos has 
approximately 40 million in revenues for 2014. You would model that out and say we bought 40 in revenue, 5 in EBITDA. We really didn't because all the cases that are being referred to other facilities equal another 40 million in revenues. And so we're now going to capture that. If you look at it this way, we've got the AFIS revenues, the AFIS EBITDA, but we're also getting the facility revenues. And what that means and why it's so impactful to us is that those revenues are going to go to our facilities that are already past break even. And the margin on these cases is over 95%. So you can imagine how much of that $40 million now is going to drop to the bottom line. Quite a substantial portion of it. Tell us about the Noblest share structure. We are listed currently on the Toronto Stock Exchange. We were known as North Star Healthcare up till about a month ago when we formally changed the name. The reason for the name change is this. We recognized that we needed to access the U.S. market, and so we applied for a listing on the New York Stock Exchange. We qualified for that listing, and we're in the process of finalizing our U.S. registration statement, and we would expect to have our listing come up sometime here in the next month or two. On the New York Stock Exchange, there are other companies called North Star Healthcare or similar, and so we needed to change our name, so we did it in conjunction with the ATHIS acquisition. So we will remain dual listed for a time on the Toronto Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange. Our ticker symbol in Toronto is NHC for Nobilis Health Corp. And on the U.S. Exchange, it will be HLTH for Health. Shares outstanding are about $60 million. Fully diluted would be about $73 million. Considering the assets of the company, that's not a huge float at all. No, I think we're real happy with where we are right now. We think our price is obviously a little undervalued, but we think we can rectify that as we roll on to the New York Exchange here in February. Harry, I've enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us on the program. I appreciate it, Alice. We love telling our story. I've been speaking with Harry Fleming, the president of Noblest Health Corp, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol NHC.TO. NHC.TO. Go to the website right now. EllisMartinReport.com. David Morgan is an expert on silver, gold, and precious metals investments. He's a world-renowned lecturer appearing on CNBC and the Fox Business Channel. He's an author having penned Get the Skinny on Silver Investing. And Mr. Morgan is a regular contributor and friend of the Ellis Martin Report. David, welcome back to the program. It's great to be back. We're looking for sunshine with regard to the mining sector. Where is the sunshine? Where are the deals? What's going on with regard to silver, gold? You are the silver guru. There are many people in our listening audience that are holding on to quite a bit of it. And what do you have to say to them today? Well, the first thing I would say is, uh, you know, where's the sunshine? It's very obvious from doing an objective analysis that the best place to be is actually in the mining sector. The value or undervaluation in the mining sector is at a level that just you know begs people to get in there if they understand value and understand you know so many of these companies are undervalued. That even more so than the bullion itself. But having said that, I really want to repeat that you know it's more important to own the physical metal than the mining shares. But as far as on a purely objective basis, the mining shares, for the most part, I mean, there's some, and it's a very tenuous time and has been for quite some time. I know that we should be looking at, you know, value across the board from speculative to mid-tier to top-tier companies because top tiers are doing mergers and acquisitions. Mid-tiers, you got to make sure their growth profiles on track. On the speculative side, which is the highest risk to reward ratio, you got to be sure that whoever you're speculating with, you put in money, can afford to lose, and they have the wherewithal to continue going if this 
bottoming process continues much longer. You mentioned mergers and acquisitions, and there's a friend of ours, there's a mutual friend of ours that has benefited recently from an acquisition where a, a major mining company picked up a, a minor mining company in South America. And I guess what you've been doing with regard to your own uh, subscriber base is laying groundwork over the years for these types of takeovers. And that's where the money seems to be benefiting investors right now who've just been patient, who haven't sold out their positions, and these potential takeout candidates have been taken out. Exactly. Because we do delve into the mining sector so deeply, we did an article in the Morgan Report some time ago that talked about mergers and acquisitions. We talked about the likely candidates that would be picked up. And then we also talked about the companies that were most likely to make the moves on those companies. So we looked at the ones that would be acquired and the ones that would be acquiring. And actually, it's pretty interesting what we wrote and what's come to fruition. We certainly haven't got it perfect, but we were pretty accurate so far. Of course, there's more to remain to be discovered. I think this mergers acquisition situation is going to continue for a while. We're still undervalued in a lot of areas, and there's a lot of bigger companies that have a lot of cash. So the ability for these larger companies to acquire smaller ones still exists. How can you accurately target those potential acquisition candidates? How are you doing that? Well, you look at you know what the present value of the company is, and you know this is just a, a one of the first things you learn in finance, and you can certainly learn it by teaching yourself how. And then you see what the net present value is, and then you see what the value of the marketplace is. So, for an example, let's say that XYZ Mining is worth a hundred million, and right now the market has it at you know twenty-five million. And you know that it's got a situation where it's mining at a small level and it's in a good jurisdiction, et cetera, et cetera. And it's close maybe to a major like an Agnico Eagle. And so then it's pretty easy to say, well, that's an acquisition target. The main thing is knowing how to appropriately determine the actual value of a company. And of course, on the exploration side, you usually cannot do that process. I mean, in the Morgan Report, what we do is in the top tier, I tell everybody every month, which are the three best performing top tier companies. That's pretty easy to determine, but you can't do that in the junior sector because you'd have to be you know, clairvoyant. You'd have to know the future. I'm just saying that because I had a reader. I love the fact that you give us the best of the best in the top tier, just tell us the best of the best in the speculative sector. <laughs> it's like pretty tough to do. We did put out a list of the most undervalued in the Morgan Report. And again, some of our readers thought we were talking about who our favorites are. Well, there's a difference between a favorite and an objective analysis of which are the most undervalued. And a company that he held a big position in wasn't mentioned as one of our quote unquote favorites the way he read that particular issue. So I addressed his question, the benefit of all readers, stating that no, this isn't a popularity contest. Yeah, your company that you have, I like the management a great deal, but that's not what we're writing about. What we're writing about is where you can buy a dollar for 50 cents. You know, we're talking about undervalued companies. That's what we did. So I think he understood that reply, what we intended. And obviously, we weren't probably as clear as we could have been in the initial analysis of which were the most undervalued. We're always working toward helping our membership as much as we possibly can, but we can't control the market. Quite honestly, I thought that we've been at the bottom a couple of times. We haven't been there, and I still think that we have bottomed. Yet, I actually did an interview with Avi Gilbert, who is a big Elliott Wave type, 
very smart guy. Met him at the PDAC. Had a chat with him before he got on stage and spoke. I came in and listened. Very articulate, very knowledgeable, very, very bullish on the metals, extremely on the silver side, and more so by far on the HUI, which means the mining sector stock-wise, than he is on the bullion price. So all those things lined up for us uh, in the Morgan Report very extremely well. And I didn't know any of this until, you know, I sat there and listened to him. And I was the next speaker, by the way. So there was something he brought up that I had a little bit of an issue with. It was a small one, but I brought it to his attention. And he agreed with me. Both of us have called the top near the $48 mark. And he's been better than me from the aspect that, you know, he basically stayed short or stayed out of the market for a very, very long time. And now he thinks there's going to be one more bottom. And so a lot of our readers are like, you know, David, is there going to be one more bottom? Answers, I don't know. I've already stuck my neck out. I said that the bottom in late November or December of last year, where silver had a print of about 1415 is probably it. Spike lows are pretty common in the silver market. There's definitely a spike low, but to be determined, the idea that silver is going to go back to 10 or whatever, I mean, pretty hard to say since I've been beaten up personally so much, you know, I've gotten a little more and more and more cautious as time has dwelled on. I mean, I remember when I thought silver was going to hold the $26 level, which it did for a very, very long time, and it broke through, but I was luckily good, strong enough, or you know, willing to admit I was wrong before it happened. I put out an alert, which we have for our Basic Plus members, and did a video and explained to everybody that we are going to go down below 26 can almost guarantee it. Of course we did. And if you look at a chart, that was what I call a psychological barrier. I mean, it was about the 1550 level for gold and $26 level corresponded to that for silver. And once those levels were breached to the downside, that was kind of the oh no moment for precious metals holders that said, you know what, I don't know if I trust this anymore. David Morgan is somebody that's, you know, putting an X over his face, those type of things. And it's been that way for quite some time. So the psychology of the market really, I think, was at that point. If you want to pick a point for me, that's where I would pick it. So what you asked me earlier, well, what do you do? And the point is, if you don't over leverage, you know, if you bought your metal and you know why you bought it, you just hold it. I mean, even though you bought it at 33 or 31 or, you know, 28 or 24 or 20, if you bought it in the right amount, you just hold it. That's what you do. That would be what I would do. I would certainly not want to sell. I mean, if you sell it and you ask yourself, where are you going to go? Are you going to go in the stock market? Are you going to go in the real estate market? How about in the bond market? Really, there's not many places to go, especially now when if you're supposed to buy low, sell high. The miners and the metals are so much of a buy here not a sell. And that would be my recommendation there. I think the best thing to do if you're underwater, the problem of course, as we both know, Ellis, is that people sometimes buy too much or they buy the wrong company. I'll tell you, I'll just, I'm going to digress a moment here, but having a lot of experience in this market, one of the things I learned the hard way was being in the right sector and in the wrong companies. When I was young, I loaded up on all these juniors because I wanted to you know, make the big hit. And a lot of these other companies were going up and up and up, and some of these juniors were going sideways to down, and I couldn't understand why. And there's nothing more frustrating than being in the right sector, gold and silver, at that time and watching everything go up. But the ones you picked aren't. That's frustrating. As far as timing goes, 
it's tough, always tough. I'm much better calling tops and bottoms, as I said before. Nonetheless, the best way is just to acquire. I mean, if you got good cash flow, you should be acquiring the whole time it's low anyway. That way, you know, you can take advantage of these low prices. One thing I would caution everybody, though, is averaging down. Unless you really know the company really, really well, you don't want to average down. You want to take that same money and put it into a different company. That diversifies you and it mitigates the risk. There was a guy, I forget his name, but he wrote a newsletter and had to do with technology. And he was huge on Global Crossing. And the people that got in with him early made a ton on Global Crossing if they were smart enough and didn't adhere to his advice and sold go on the way up or near the top or, or after it topped and started coming down. But he kept insisting what a great company it was all the way into bankruptcy and kept telling his people to average down and it destroyed them. So you gotta be real careful about averaging down. Now, averaging down on the metals themselves, that's a slightly different situation because it's a hardcore physical asset out of the ground that has had value for thousands of years. That's a little different story than averaging on a mining company or stock. Speaking of averaging down or at least heading down, oil has taken a dramatic decline with regard to, to prices. And it used to be that gold and silver and oil were sort of lumped into, into the same basket and they'd rise and fall at the same time. But I think it's safe to say that there has been a decoupling. Well, I would argue slightly different. I think there's kind of a cycle phase where there's a lead lag kind of thing. Certainly all commodities and the most important commodities commodities go together in a bull market but and I forget the gentleman's name there was a guy and I didn't study him for very long he had a very interesting theory that there was kind of a rotation sort of like in a stock market where cyclicals lead the market for a while then technology stocks take over and lead for a while and then other times even gold stocks will lead for a while that kind of an idea that different sectors within the market led for a while and there was sort of a rotation you could anticipate what would be the next sector as one was dying off the next one to come to the top well this guy had the same type of theory in the commodities again i didn't study him for very long so i would argue that that it's more something that they don't always travel together sometimes they're the leader or laggard but regardless the point you're making more importantly in my view is that wow what the heck's going on with the energy sector and these are my words, not yours, but the energy sector is by far the most important sector in the commodity world. And with oil prices down, you know, what's the trade-off to benefit versus non-benefit? Uh, one of the benefits, of course, for mining companies is 25% for the average company is based on oil. So if you get a deduction of 50% in product, a commodity that you need to use, that uses up 25% of your company's resources, energy, oil, to get metal out of the ground, that's a huge boom. I mean, one of the NYSE companies that we follow and have since the $4 level, that's up quite a bit from there, but it's been much higher than it is today, is dropped its cost from about 20, and this is our analysis, not theirs, because so these numbers always vary a little bit, but we had it around $22 all in cost per ounce of silver. Now it's down to like 14 and a half. And not all of that is attributed to oil, but a great deal of it is. So that's a benefit. On the other side, it's been very negative to the shale oil market because most of the shale oil situations require oil to be about $80 a barrel, and it's not. So that's causing not only wells to be drilled less 
a lot of rigs to be on standby, some workers to be laid off, but the much more important factor is the debt burden that exists in the oil industry. And just to reiterate something I think I said on your show once before, but if I haven't, it's probably the most important part of this interview, and that is that the debt burden in the oil sector is greater than the debt burden was in the 2008 housing market. So wrap your head around that. If we are set up in a situation that's worse than the 2007-2008 financial crisis, and we are because there's more derivatives, the banks are better liquefied, but the derivatives situation is worse. And rather than the housing sector, this would be the oil sector, which affects as many people or more than the housing sector because not everyone was out there buying a property on speculation that the price would always go up. Oil affects everybody because it's transportation, it's food, it's everything that you know happens on the planet almost has oil touching it in one way, shape, or form. So that's something to be cognizant of, something that I'm concerned about and it's something to watch carefully. In fact, when this first started, meaning the oil price started to drop, I said you probably wouldn't see any real-world problems in quotation marks until about the May time frame. So we've got about another month, but I think by the next month or so, we'll probably start reading, even in the mainstream press, defaults or debt that can't be paid or extending the debt payments or taking less or, you know, see, you start to see problems come to the fore. All related to energy. So in other words, there may not even be a bottom that we've hit with regard to oil, even as it creeps back up to $60. And if something happens in that sector, are you saying it could affect the economy uh, much like what happened with the real estate bubble or, or bust back in 2008? Yes, I am. There's a lag between, you know, what's on paper debt-wise and the real world. In other words, most people don't go bankrupt overnight once they are bankrupt. It just means that, you know, you know you're out of money, but your creditors don't necessarily know it. They're sending you a notice to pay your credit card bill and you ignore it, or you call them and say, I can't make it this month. Say, okay, well, start next month, or when can you, or whatever. But So there's restructuring that goes on, there's delay, there's ignoring it. So it takes a while from the day that you're really bankrupt until everything catches up to you, so to speak. Well, that's on a personal basis, but to use that as an illustration to the corporate world where you're XYZ shale company and you have all these loans and you've been drilling like crazy and things were wonderful once, you know, oil was over $80 a barrel. But now that it's at 60 or, you know, whatever it is, and it's under 80, you cannot service your debt. And so this takes time for that to catch up for the day of reckoning, so to speak. But that day is approaching, and again, I forecast, you know, probably May or so. That we get a huge surge in oil prices, and they stay at above, let's say, 80 as an example. There's not, you know, it varies company to company, but 80 is a good rule of thumb then everything would probably proceed on and there'd be no big problem, so to speak. But as it exists now and the way I think it is going to exist for the next year or so, it could cause some big disruptions on the debt side of the oil market. So it's a potential recessionary event. Yes, it could be a recessionary. It could be more than that. It 
could be mitigated perhaps in a manner that I haven't thought of yet. I certainly don't have all the answers. I usually have much more questions than I do answers. Will any of this that we've discussed, a potential collapse of the energy market with regard to oil, positively affect the price of silver? Yes, I still am um, here studying history that gold and silver, particularly gold, are more of a crisis hedge than an economic hedge. And I know there's lots of people say, well, it's, you know, it goes inverse to the dollar, and that's all you have to think about. There's other people say it's an inflation hedge, which, you know, Professor Roy S. Jasta really proved it's more of a deflation hedge than an inflation hedge. And he also showed in that book, and what he did on silver, silver, the restless metal, that one, it isn't a constant always that every time gold reacts this way to a deflation, but the majority of the time that it does. And silver was much more erratic what you'd expect it to be. So you have to kind of use all of the tools available, which means, you know, reading those books a couple of times, how silver and gold have reacted in the more current day, because that's more important is near-term data than long-term data. It's always that way. That's how these trading software programs are set up. They're set up to bias or weight the near-term trading activity more importantly than with the longer-term trading activity. And that's correct because it emphasizes sort of the mood of the market, if I'm making sense here. So what I'm saying is the mood of the market has shown me that uh, gold and silver react more as a crisis hedge than anything else at this point in time. And so what that means is that there's an oil fallout in the debt markets because of over-leverage or borrowing money that can't be paid back. That you would probably see the gold and silver markets rise. You got to remember the 2008 crisis that something a lot of people forgot is yes, gold and silver went down with the crisis, but at the bottom, they were selling at huge premiums. Remember in the silver market, in the retail side, you had to pay about a 30% premium to get real silver in your hands. And on the gold side, it was a, I forget, but it was like a 10, 12% premium. And usually it's, you know, a 5, 6% premium. And they rose up very quickly. It was a V bottom. It was something that, you know, a paper paradigm really what I, is what took them down because there's so much leverage in the futures markets, the ETFs. So the money managers were, you know, basically selling anything they can. And of course, selling paper gold or paper silver is nothing. It's just a click of a mouse for them. But they rebounded quite well. And from the 2008 bottom, did extremely well up into the 2011 top. So I think if there was another... 2008, I put that in quotation marks, there was something similar to that. I think you might get a quick move down in the metals like last time, but I'm not even sure that would happen. I think that it's possible that they could just actually stay steady and start up a startup instantly. I think the physical market's much tighter than the price would indicate. And I think there's a lot more people more aware of where to go when this type of thing happens. So again, crisis hedge, don't know where to go. I'm going to park in the metals. I've been speaking with David Morgan, the silver guru. Find him at themorganreport.com and listen to this segment again on the homepage of the ellismartinreport.com or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Join me now for a conversation with Dudley Baker of commonstockwarrants.com and his new endeavor, marijuanaspeculator.com, as we take a first look on this program at that relatively new investment space and a space not without controversy. 
Here's that interview with Dudley. Dudley Pierce Baker, welcome back. It has been quite some time since you and I have officially talked here, and so it's really good to reconnect and bring you up to speed on what both of us have been doing, and more so on this new site uh, that we got, Marijuana Speculator. Let's talk for a few minutes about mining stocks. I've been trying to get excited about the sector, and I really haven't been able to do it, so we've talked less and less about it on the Ellis Martin Report. This is what you've been doing for the past, I'm going to say, 15, 20 years, you transitioned successfully into the marijuana cannabis sector. Back in, oh God, it was like 2005, I guess, when we started what was called Precious Metals Warrants, specifically just honing in exactly only on the mining and the mining stocks that had warrants trading. So it was a very boutique service. It was good. It had a real niche in the marketplace as the gold stock went up and all the mining stocks. And then we expanded and renamed it commonstockwarrants.com. Now, all of the warrants that are trading U.S. and Canada, still a great service, still got subscribers around the world. The sector right now is pretty much stagnated as we've got gold sitting here around this 1200 range. The shares are, are not performing as we would like them to perform. I believe the whole sector will get hot again and it's going to be a great time to play this again. I probably still have 80 to 90 percent of my monies are in this resource sector. Several of them are underwater, obviously. I've got some that we've got profits. I've always been looking for the opportunity to not leave one sector, go the other, but to diversify. This marijuana sector just seems like this is the logical place to go. Actually, when we launched Marijuana Speculator, actually it was last summer when we officially launched, and we were the only site being marijuanaspeculator.com that had the complete list of all of the companies trading in this space. At the time, there were probably 250 companies out there and I thought, well, this is pretty cool that we'll give the investors the whole list. What I've come to realize, nobody wants the whole damn list. I guess the question is, so what do I do with the list, Dudley? I've come to realize that no, everybody in life, they would like the recommendations. Tell us what to buy. Tell us what to sell. And so this is what I'm putting together right now as we speak. We're going to call this, my last name's Baker, and my son's involved too, as website guy and formerly kind of uh, a lot of different varied business interests. We're going to call this the Baker's Dozen. It's going to be our top 13 picks in the cannabis marijuana space. So we're uh, putting this list together, and I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks this is all nice and neat and officially and ready to go. I did dole out my first recommendation this morning to our current subscribers, and so I couldn't resist. I had to go with this one, kind of drop down into my buy zone, and I said, we got to do this. Really excited about diversifying into this sector of the marijuana cannabis and the hemp space and and all of this. Now, you mentioned that you're still significantly vested into the, uh, the mining space and you will remain that way for quite some time. I know that you uh, are a contrarian and you believe in taking advantage of opportunities before everyone else takes advantage of them as well. And that's why you've shifted into this cannabis and marijuana sector because you see the trend coming. Have you put any serious money into uh, weed yet? Yeah, and when you say that, I'm a guy that's never smoked in my life. So I approach this more from the business standpoint of seeing the business opportunity of where this is going. as opposed to being a real user myself. That's just who I am. But yeah, I've probably got, at the moment, probably no more than 10% in this sector as I'm able to free up some of the cash resources in the resource sector. So I had one of my companies over the last couple of weeks was bought out by Ignico Eagle. That freed up some cash for me that has allowed me now to buy 
I call it a basket of some of these marijuana cannabis stocks. And so that's the way to play it to me and not plow into just one, but it's like basket, whether it means for any individual six or eight or 10, or when we put together our baker's dozen, whether somebody wants to put an equal amount into all 13 companies would be an idea. I'm finding my new monies that come my way, cash that comes my way, the availability is I will be more increasing my portfolio in the marijuana space because I think this is the sector that's going to be here, whether we like it or not, it's going to be here for a long time. We're still in the initial stages of this sector. A lot of these companies are right there at the beginning of 2000. 14, when Denver legalized and all this good stuff was happening, I mean, you look back at, at the share prices for any company that was trading then, they exploded to the upside. It was so parabolic, it was unbelievable. And so many have just been in a big down moves ever since, even though they've got some good opportunities going on. My timing is, is great to be coming in here, providing a new service, because we're going to be able to come in and really peg some really low entry prices for our subscribers that are following us. We're going to try to make it where more, quote, long-term investment, meaning maybe a couple of years. Now, probably in this marijuana space, there's a lot of trading mentality going on, a lot of younger investors and looking for the quick buck. I'm not sure I'm really going to be looking for the quick buck, but if we have the opportunity in a few months or uh, three months or six months to make some nice profits, we're going to take them. So it's going to be more about a little bit faster action, obviously, making some money and getting it off the table and, and looking for the next opportunities. You know, you mentioned young people, and right away I have to think of my nephew who's 27 years old who has invested in the sector, who's made money in the sector. He's a trader both short-term and long-term, and he's never touched the weed. He does not partake in it, but yet he sees it as a possible trend. So this is what young investors are looking at. Again, it would be kind of foolish to ignore this sector from the investment standpoint, because I think it is going to be really cool. I don't know, I might just mention one little company. I had it in my portfolio, even in the mining sector, where some of the, what I call the gold subscribers, got to see everything I own. So it was sitting there for quite a few months, called Totally Hemp Crazy. So it was a crazy name, and it's like, oh my God. So what happened to Totally Hemp Crazy? I bought it as low as point zero zero eight. I left the party way too quick, but probably averaged out in the six cent range. So still that probably averaged out at at a good 500% profit. Missed the big move. The big move took it up to 32 cents. Oh my God. But the deal is we never know what the top's going to be. They really had a, a great business model and a, and a drink that they call Rocky Mountain High. And, th- and this company could be around for a long time. I just don't know. I bought it to make more of a quick play. I had a really nice position, kicked myself in the butt that I rolled early. But looking back, we got to make decisions in real time, right? So I made the best decision I could with all the facts and looking at charts, etc. You can't go back and beat yourself up, not when you still made the 500% or so profit. Those are going to be the kind of deal, man, if we can find it, Marijuana Speculator, that's going to be really, really cool. Well, let's get back to this 5, 10, 15 banger concept or way of doing business, way of making money that you applied successfully to the mining industry. And we've touched on it now with relation to cannabis and hemp. You really think it's possible. There's going to be some parabolic trends and there's also going to be some solid company building that will grow a stock slow and steady though, where you might be able to see some definite benefit over a period of six months or or a year. And then there's the stocks that you may get in and get out of simply because it's a buzzword for a week or two. 
I sure don't want to get engaged in what I call the day trading activity for these little things. There are so many of these small companies out here. Let's say with me monitoring the complete list, and I'll, I'll admit it's a challenge to keep up with this list because almost every day this is this is a, an evolving world. But we probably have a good 275 companies right now, U.S. mainly, and some of the Canadian companies that are flipping over into the marijuana space. So there's a big universe of companies. I would venture to say that 80 to 100 of the companies are selling for less than one penny. So what that means is obviously high risk. I'd love to find something again like the Totally Hemp Crazy for less than a penny and have a really nice position and ride this thing up. That will be the challenge and a real challenge, but we got to realize that the odds of probably connecting that are maybe against us, but that's still what we're going to be looking for. But we just have to be realistic there. A lot of these little companies are probably greatly underfunded. They're going to be disappearing like some of the mining companies that disappeared. Net-net, I may always have one or two of these high risk situations in our baker's dozen. I'd rather go with companies that really seem to have are more grounded. I mean, there's some companies in the vaporizer sector that, you know, they're already out there. They're already got revenues. They've already got cash flow and different ideas on how to expand their brand. These are the ideas that I think make more sense is to have in, in the baker's dozen. Other companies that may be providing support services within the whole cannabis sector, anywhere from security to, I think banking is still an issue here in this whole space, but just any kind of support services to the whole industry and the growers as well. So we're trying to find the good companies that we think are growers. We know a few in Canada and, and that's no brainers to have one or two of the, the growers in Canada. You know, in the US, it's more difficult. So if, if you were a grower in, in Denver, okay, that's not gonna mean uh, a damn thing to Texas until this is legalized in enough states how do you take your publicly traded vehicle and if you're only in one state in the United States? Trying to grapple with that as well from a grower standpoint in the United States. I'm trying to break it down, me, as to the different sectors, being the growers, being the actual medical marijuana and pharmaceutical. If we can find a couple of companies in that space, the support services. And then I'll say that, like the consumer product, whether that's the vaporizers, the e-cigarettes, the whatever. Just try to compartmentalize everything and have basically our basket of 13 stocks. The bottom line is about making money. If you'd have come in here three months, six months, a year ago, not that there hasn't been a few winners like the Totally Hemp Crazy, but this has been a nasty ride for many of the investors in this marijuana space uh, investing because a lot of these companies have just drifted on down. And so investors have little or nothing to show for rewards over the last year or so. I really think right now, I'm not sure exactly what that spark, what that catalyst is going to be that's going to take us up for another wave. I think those of us that are just even thinking about this or in the business, we know there's going to be a spark. We don't know what that is. Now, obviously, if the feds came out tomorrow and said, no, we're legalizing everything, it's like, okay, there's your spark. This whole industry is going to friggin' explode. That's just the great unknown as to where we're going to be going with this. We're laying the groundwork for uh, an interesting ride. We don't know where that ride's going to go right now, but we at least have to put together some sort of foundation and take a look at some companies. There's not necessarily going to be a takeout candidate like the one you just uh, profited from in the mining industry with a a major uh, mining company taking out a a small mining company in, in South America. And that's not going to happen anytime soon in the cannabis sector. You're laying the groundwork for possible five or ten bangers. That's going to be the philosophy. I will say is that nobody rings the bell. 
tells you where the top is. I mean, obviously, we'd love to see those hundreds of percent, you know, the five or ten bangers. Surely, if we still see the opportunity to, you know, you get a quick 50 to 100 percent gain on some of these little companies, we might recommend taking half of it off the table. You know, that way you've got your cost basis out and you ride with the rest. So that's always been a great philosophy to employ, even if you leave some profits on the table. It is a matter, at the end of the day, you never want to ride something up. You buy it at the right price. I've, I've usually done a good job in life of entry, picking good companies, the entry price, and then it's a matter of, it's very subjective when it comes to, damn, when do I sell? Who tells us how? Are we looking at charts? Are we looking at news? Are we looking at whatever? So we're in the process of getting this baby going. I'm excited. So look forward to having everybody on board with us. Dudley Pierce-Baker, my good friend, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with Dudley Baker of CommonStockWarrants.com and MarijuanaSpeculator.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Thanks for joining me today. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.